Welcome to Three Panel Contrast, the podcast that, when the world isn't ending, puts great works of comics art and some pretty great people with expertise on the subject of comics into conversation. Today we'll be looking at the pivotal connection between the hero and the body of the hero, particularly in situations where the body is a little different from the expected, such as we see in Box Brown's Andre the Giant and in Usama Tezuka's Dororo. It's perhaps a strange pairing, and I may be on the hook to justify it, but here we go anyway. Uh, welcome back, everyone. We are attempting our first remote recording after a brief pandemic hiatus that scattered the three of us to different corners of the province. I'm a little saddened by this, both because I enjoy hanging out with Michael and Anna, and because we often have donuts for our recording session, and special shout out to Beechwood Donuts in St. Catharines. Nonetheless, we're soldiering on. So I am your host today, Dr. J. Andrew Duman, and I am joined by my colleagues... Hello, I am Dr. Anna Papard. I am a postdoctoral fellow at Brock University. And uh, Michael Hancock, a postdoctoral researcher at the Games Institute at the University of Waterloo. So with that ramble aside, let's look at a couple of strange, awesome comics that foreground the representation of the body in the comics medium. Michael, what can you tell us about Dororo? To say that someone needs no introduction is to imply that their contributions are so many and so universally known, any attempt to put it into words isn't just unnecessary, but perhaps even reductive and insulting to their actual full list of accomplishments. Nevertheless, I was tempted to do just that and stop this introduction right here. Uh, in part, this would be because I am, in essence, a very lazy person. But it would also in part be that because if there's anyone in manga who did not need an introduction, it would be Osamu Tezuka. Tezuka has been called the father of manga. Uh, granted, North American scholars have a tendency to overstate his significance, including me, right now in this very introduction. But his body of work is impressive, including influential manga series such as Princess Knight, Himba the White Lion, Black Jack, Phoenix, Buddha, and of course, Astro Boy. The last series in particular was adapted into animation in the 1960s and became the first animated Japanese TV show dubbed into English for an American audience. Heavily influenced by Disney animation, Izuka's own work has influenced subsequent Japanese creators, including Akira Toriyama of Dragon Ball, Go Nagai of Devilman, and Shotaro Ishinomori, creator of Super Sentai, better known in the West as the show adapted into the Power Rangers series. Today, we're reading one of Tezuka's lesser works, the first volume of Dororo. And by lesser work, I mean it's only inspired two TV series, a film series, a video game, a remake manga, and an English translation that won an Eisner in 2009. The premise of Dororo lies less with its titular character and more with its other protagonist, Yakimaru. Yakimaru's father, a Japanese feudal lord during the Sengo Sengoku period, which Wikipedia handily tells me is between 1467 and 1615, makes a deal with 48 devils, no more nor less, receive power in exchange for body parts from his son. His son is then born missing 48 body parts, and he orders his wife to abandon the son in a river. Years later, that son is a ronin mercenary, seeing and hearing through an inner eye and fighting with prosthetic arms that give way in battle to swords embedded in, the remain, in his remaining stumps. He rescues the young thief Dororo from death at the hands of an angry mob, and the two proceed on a series of adventure battling a host of beautifully illustrated demons along the way. Tezuka's simplified art style sits in tension with the story's dark subject matter. While Hyakimaru does battle his share of demons, say approximately 48 of them, it is made eminently clear that the demons are alone are not the evil plaguing this land. The Japanese samurai that rule the land enable the worst of their excesses through their casual cruelty and pursuit of power. Both Dororo and Hyakumaru suffer the loss of those close to them through the evil acts not just of demons, but of men. Implicit in this plot is a great deal of agency for the disabled protagonist. The exact portrayal of that agency leads to some rather dubious disability narratives. It remains to be seen, or rather remains to be discussed by us, probably at great length, whether the, Doror the story of Dororo the manga amounts to a glorified 16th century daredevil or something more. I'll conclude then with the story's epigraph. No man is born whole. Thank you, Michael. Um, I, I do have a tangential aside here to point out. 
one of the voice actors who supplied the voice of Astro Boy in that English dub is actually a colleague of mine at St. Jerome's University. Uh, oh I've been God. telling my students that I poop in the same bathroom as Astro Boy, which I think is pretty, pretty amazing. <laughs> no one needs to know that. I will immediately delicately segue. Um, Anna, what can you tell us about Andre the Giant? Fox Brand's 2014 comic, Andre the Giant, Life and Legend, tells the story of professional wrestler and international icon Andre the Giant, birth name Andre Rusimov, from his birth in rural France to his early death from heart failure in a hotel room in Paris. This is a big story about a big man spanning decades and continents and reeling between moments of joyful lightness and sometimes chilling darkness. Brown's comics capture the many facets of a larger-than-life man living a larger-than-life life, but it does so in an interesting way that's specific to comics. Brown doesn't make any attempt to capture every detail of Andre's life and doesn't presume to total accuracy. Total accuracy would be next to impossible for a figure like Andre, who acquired a legendary aura even before he began a career playing an exaggerated character based loosely on himself. It's the purview of professional wrestling to maintain uncertain boundaries between the real and the fake. And this is especially true for Andre, someone who lived his life surrounded by people, yet was always inevitably apart. Brown leads into the legendariness of Andre's life by telling his story in a largely chronological series of vignettes based on stories told about Andre by people who knew him. We get stories from his youth, in which he's transported to school in the back of a pickup truck driven by playwright Samuel Beckett. We get stories from his early wrestling career in France, Japan, and Canada, specifically the Montreal Forum, where we see his legend grow and see him first confront the medical diagnosis of his gigantism, including a prognosis that he won't live past the age of 40 and will likely be in significant pain for his later years. Finally, we see Andre make it in America as a star attraction of Vince McMahon Sr. and Jr.'s World Wrestling Entertainment, then the World Wrestling Federation, or WWF. Brown's thick, soft line work, sparse details, and largely objective framing, with some well-placed moments of deliberate exaggeration, celebrates Andre's legend. Andre is viewed in this comic through an almost childlike lens, which seems appropriate to the way many people did view him, as a spectacle inspiring childlike wonder. Yet Brown also disarms and humanizes the myth of Andre through the insertion of those aforementioned moments of darkness. We can move quickly in this comic from Andre delighting children with a smile on his face to Andre getting blackout drunk alone in bars, rejecting his only daughter, or in what is perhaps the ugliest moment of the comic, using a highly offensive racial slur against fellow wrestler Bad News Brown, then challenging him to a fight while refusing to apologize or acknowledge the wrongness of his actions. Because Brown, the comic book artist, uses the same sparse, objective style for both the moments that mythologize Andre and the moments that disarm his myth, we become challenged as readers to explore our own implication in the mythologizing of figures like Andre. We want larger-than-life figures to be exactly that, larger-than-human folly or weakness. But of course they're not, and Andre's certainly no exception. Brown also doesn't shy away from the physical pain Andre lived with almost constantly as an adult. Brown humanistically dissects Andre's condition, the acromeg agromelagy, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, related to his gigantism, which contributed to his distinctive size and features and led to premature aging, crippling joint pain, and his eventual heart failure. In several full-page spreads that take us inside Andre's body, Brown shows the effect of agromelagy upon each part of that body. Brown uses the comics form to great effect here to show us what is and will go on inside Andre's prodigious flesh. While we don't get a lot of psychological interiority from Brown's depiction of Andre, the literal physical interiority feeds into everything else. We can infer that things like Andre's drinking and occasional recklessness extend in part from what was going on inside his body, which both was and wasn't visible on the outside. But for all it does really well, Brown's comic also leaves plenty of questions unanswered about Andre's life. Like any biography, it also raises political issues about when it is and isn't appropriate to embellish and who gets to arbitrate the truth. Brown's comic is based largely on public interviews and autobiographies of other wrestlers. He doesn't interview Andre's estranged daughter, other people who actually knew him. Whether this matters is something we will certainly be discussing on today's pod. This is an incredibly useful text for talking about the types of truth we do or should expect from biographies in general, and comic book biographies in particular, given the comic book form's propensity for both simplification and self-reflexivity, and professional wrestling's propensity for the same. And I look forward to talking about all of these things with you folks today. Thank you. Uh, okay, so before we get started today, um, I just want to put in a little bit of a, a note on pronouns. 
Dororo's relationship to sex and gender is somewhat complicated. Dororo is revealed to be biologically female as a major plot point in the story, but Dororo identifies as male. The problem being, it's not super clear whether Dororo identifies as male intrinsically or whether Dororo is maintaining a disguise imposed by Dororo's parents. So for our purposes, we're going to refer to Dororo as they, I believe we have agreed upon. Um, yeah, but if fine. we mess that up, we can yeah. <laughs> apologize or edit uh, as we kind of go along. As I said, it, it's a very complex portrayal. Uh, okay, so I, I think the first question has to go at sort of the, the surface issue. As Anna mentioned, there's a lot happening sort of in terms of nuance of these portrayals that we can dig down into. But let's maybe just go right at the idea of um, ableism as it manifests in both of these texts. Um, Michael, would you like to start us off on that subject with Dororo? Sure. Can um, you just succinctly talk about <laughs> very complicated disability issues <laughs> in this? Like, anyway, go ahead, Michael. Yeah, um, my I will put up front here that most of my knowledge on this subject comes from uh, whatever my vague memories of reading. Uh, is it Jose Alanis? Is uh, death, disability, and the superhero? Yep. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so. Like the first recommendation is go read that book uh, over listening to me, but do I, both. <laughs> yes, do both. I think there is a reasonable comparison with Daredevil there, not just in the sense that we have uh, essentially blind superheroes, but specifically superheroes whose abilities seem to compensate for their disability. That mm -hmm. uh, Yakamura's uh, secret eye seems to grant similar, even further reaching abilities that he can communicate over large distances and he can essentially read people's minds through his power. Mm -hmm. And we also have the idea that he has a, his disability is something to be cured, that it is unnatural. And as he slays these demons, he becomes truer to his more natural form. Mm -hmm. it's, yeah, it, it is a, it's kind of having its cake and eating it too, in the sense that he is on this narrative of restoration. And it would be interesting if the story explored what would happen in the other direction. What are the detriments and losses that he experiences through regaining these body parts? But for the most part, it doesn't go there. Yeah, it's funny. I was assuming it was going to go there, like when he like regrows an eye and well, especially, I mean, I'm a big Daredevil fan, so the eye thing especially stood out to me, but he regrows an eye and I was thinking that it was going to go to a place of he doesn't have the same access to his abilities because vision actually is going to throw off his inner eye, which is always what happens when Daredevil gets his sight back. He can't be Daredevil anymore because he loses his radar sense, so he is always faced with this do I want my sight or do I want my superpowers? And that actually is an interesting conflict for mm -hmm. admittedly problematic character. He but yeah, I was assuming these, this would go that way, but then it didn't. He sometimes has these flashes where it's like, oh, it takes him a, a full like 10 pages to orient to this new thing. But he <laughs> 10 pages, I was gonna say like two panels, but. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, two panels is closer to the truth, yeah. It kind of suggests that uh, Tezuka is more interested in the visual of guy, a guy with swords for hands. But yeah, as you said, it's hard. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead, Andrew. Sorry. Well, I was going to say, I, I, just to devil's advocate a little bit, uh, two things. I, I think one thing the most Which important... Devil? Which one of the 48? Sorry. <laughs> Dumb joke. Do you want me to pretend I know the name of one oh. of them? <laughs> <laughs> so, on the one hand, I would argue that, first off, Hyakimaru becoming whole, so to speak, is not actually a motivating force for him. It's not the inciting force of the text, right? He has That's to true. leave to yeah. protect the doctor. Uh, and then two, I would argue that like, he kind of doesn't seem to care that much throughout a lot of the story. Like it comes up initially, but, but after a while, eh. And then the other it side does, of that is the swords. Yeah. Like, like he is it's, specifically a superhero because of these abilities, like Daredevil. So I think we're in that also, same Matt Murdock space. How do we work through that? He also doesn't seem to care a lot, though, when, say, the sword gets, he, he gets his hand back and it doesn't seem to phase his fighting method no. at all. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you're, you're also right that 
it is almost hard to say what specifically motivates him. He's kind of the wandering, well, I mean, he has the wandering Ronin archetype. Yeah. He, yeah. he goes around and isn't particularly driven. If there is a demon around, he will uh, deal with it, but he doesn't go demon seeking. They no. kind of seek him. Yeah, I, I suppose that maybe reflects the trauma of his life, that he, uh, the times that he has gone to seek out things, like following the blind monk who leads him to the monastery of war orphans, uh, that winds in pretty much tragedy. And I think that's what's almost stood out to me more the story, the emotional trauma and fallout of these living through these pretty horrific moments in history. Mm. Yeah, I mean, them continuously being sort of kicked out of these places, I definitely found a little bit more moving than some of the disability stuff, really. I mean, getting back to a point you made um, earlier, uh, Michael, it's just the the heavy kind of emphasis on like a compensation model of disability where it's mm -hmm. like, he's disabled, but he's got all of these things that compensate for it and kind of make him superior. And then you, you get multiple instances too of other characters who are introduced who are blind who also have extra senses because they're blind. So like it goes hard into that kind of idea, which, you know, I mean, there's, there's cultural antecedents and stuff to that. So I don't want to be like all ragging on that, but at the same time, like, yeah, from a 21st century perspective um, where we're aware of kind of some of these, um, trends and myths uh definitely reads as a little bit problematic yeah i, I think for yeah. me it comes down to the quote that michael referenced not everyone is born whole the idea being that hiyaki maru is spiritually not whole because he's physically not whole uh, and that and, is an offensive argument yeah it is and it's strange because most of the characters we see are arguably yes people who are not whole emotionally but that's not a result of their birth. It's a result of the viciousness of the ruling class around. I mean, there is a power, though, definitely. Like, I mean, you could see because, I mean, you know, it's one of those things where everything has multiple meanings. And you can see that the power that comes across, too, in his lack of <laughs> his lack of neurosis surrounding mm -hmm. his disability, sort of. I mean, the fact that he is just super powerful and he actually doesn't worry about it a lot and he's just going around being super cool. I mean, there's definitely a power to that, That's too. True. I mean, that yeah. I'm sure came across to you guys as you were reading oh, yeah. it. Yeah. So, I mean, it can be empowering and offensive at the same time, depending on your perspective, sure. right? Well, what about yeah, Andre the sure. Giant, Dana? How do, you, how do you feel about the portrayal of um, Andre's disability? Yeah, I mean, I feel bad because I, I feel like I could tell that that's what you wanted to like focus on when you paired these two texts, and I just got so bogged down in like wanting to talk about wrestling. So, but I mean, the, obviously those things are related. So, I mean, yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I liked the things that Brown did with sort of dissecting the disability and stuff. I mean, it's not present consistently throughout the graphic novel, though. I mean, we have mm -hmm. those scenes where he has sort of the full page um, spreads where he does things like he, you know, bisects Andre's body and shows us all the different ways that, yeah, that his condition is affecting yeah, different parts a, of his body. Yeah, yeah, I think those are some of the strongest um, parts of the book. Yeah. And so we have that as a context to understand some of his other actions and things. But I don't know, I, I'll be curious to see what you guys thought about. But I, I found it interesting the way he doesn't include references to that pain in things like the wrestling scenes mm -hmm. which have a lot of physical kind of joy and power and there's a darkness to them because he makes the choice to do the wrestling scenes um with black um borders instead of the white that is for the rest of the comic so there's but you know you can just see that as kind of like an intensity thing to kind of emphasize the the action of the scene but i don't know what did you think about that choice i thought it was strange that it didn't sort of come into those scenes he's, he's not sort of talking about you know when andre goes down for whatever move he's in tremendous pain and that wasn't sort of a factor i found that an interesting choice and i wasn't sure what to make of it well the, the darkness of the scenes i interpreted as um sort of a visceral representation of literally being in a spotlight mm -hmm. where yeah. you can't see the crowd around you and then that the lack sense. of pain i would maybe like maybe <laughs> suggest that it's the idea that when he's when he's in the ring he's not feeling the pain right that yeah okay adrenaline mm -hmm. performance 
some degree, but that's fine. It deals with a lot of the wrestling descriptions that Brown is coming from more of a position of a fan, which is interesting that he, there is more tone from him, or at least I picked it up more than the rest of the story. It's, it, I was just looking back over the, the page where they do discuss the Andre's uh, increasing disability and it's kind of striking through juxtaposition that it's along with the wrestling scenes it's pretty much the only scenes where brown interjects directly yeah which is interesting too because i mean that mm-hmm. brings in that problematic of truth in terms of recounting someone else's physical disability because you get mm-hmm. the scene at the end where he's doing the interview on um beefcakes uh wwf talk show thing and it's effectively Brown describing his viewing of that interview because yeah. he's sort of describing how he perceives Andre as looking during this interview and this moment his eyes well up and his struggle to get up onto the stage. And then he interprets all these things that Andre is feeling based on his viewing of this interview. So he becomes very transparently a fan interpreting these actions and moments like that. And I don't know how I felt about that because I mean, if it's sort of about, I mean, this graphic novel does multiple things. It is like sort of about the myth and the legend and humanizing that legend. So it's doing operating on these multiple levels, but in moments like that, I did sort of find myself questioning, you know, what is this graphic novel about? Is it about your experience of Andre as a legend? And maybe you should be clearer about that up front. And that would actually make me feel less uncomfortable about some of the slippery truth going on here. Because the objective style that he kind of has can actually like hide that a little bit. And I found myself being a bit suspicious of that. Because I mean, if we go back to those wrestling scenes, I absolutely agree that he's in the position of a fan there. And that can be a really interesting choice because I think I agree that you have to talk about the joyfulness of wrestling because if it's just about the darkness, that doesn't make sense to Andre as a figure and the joy that he brought. That doesn't make sense to Andre's own experience of wrestling. He clearly enjoyed wrestling a great deal. On the other hand, though... I just found myself so uncomfortable so much of the time with like the elision of that pain and some of the behind the scenes stuff because as much as there are multiple multiple there are many 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 moments of darkness throughout the graphic novel I still felt like this isn't as dark as it should be and I don't know I just Mm. it's partly the credit of Brown that it's making me have these conflicted feelings because I'm sure that's like the intent Mm. but yeah I don't know something like brown interpreting what andre is feeling inside of his body i don't know is that questionable is that okay i'm not sure maybe one thing i can do to to, to kind of land somewhere <laughs> i made a pun because it's about airplanes um i love the ending of this book i love the fact that our last scene isn't andre dying or isn't wrestlemania it's, it's andre on a plane and the last line is deal the cards boss it's a long flight so that's kind of that, yeah. that sort of intimate humanistic portrayal, which is maybe the the inverse of that fan perspective that Brown otherwise gives us. I was wondering what, what you make of that and how that folds into your perspective. Like, like, well, why that's does it end there, there too, because because he's he's generating a false intimacy with the subject, though, yeah. imagining this interaction and imagining our ability to be present at that interaction, as much as he's playing with presence and distance because it's a shot of the plane in the sky yeah. and we're not in the scene. We are distanced. So it's I'm basically mean, flying to heaven. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a few moments of corniness in this graphic novel. I wasn't a super big fan of the Samuel Beckett scene and the maybe I'll see you up on a stage someday. I was like, oh, God, I roll my eyes. That wasn't great. But, um, but well, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Thoughts, Michael? It's part of the like, legend part, though, right? That like, yeah. it's almost Andre through the lens of a kind of a Forrest Gump sort of thing. Look how he yeah. interacts with these other... I mean, clearly, yeah, he is interjecting exactly how the dialogue went between them. But yeah, it, it's this sense of Andre having kind of a magnetism that pulls events towards him. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I still kind of go back to, I wish that it had been a little bit more transparent about the looseness of its truth, though. Because I, I, I just still feel myself being suspicious of something like, 
I mean, how jarring was it to open with the Hulk Hogan interview in which Hogan is kind of coming off as the best guy ever? And it's framed and kind of done very objectively, right? It's, it's you know, when we talk about, you know, filming an interview so that a subject looks good, he's effectively drawing Hulk Hogan in this scene so that he looks good and he looks credible. And he is saying all of these things that are humanizing Andre and like criticizing other wrestlers for not being as nice to Andre as they could have. And I just, <laughs> even all of the Hulk Hogan scandals that happened sort of after this graphic novel, the whole Gawker thing and... Uh, the racist rant stuff that came out. So uh, for to be clear, the sex tape Gawker thing happened, would have happened while Brown was working on this. It did happen before, but the stuff with the racist rant would have happened after. So we can't expect Brown to have addressed that in this graphic novel. It happened a couple of years after. Um, so it's sort of placed weird historically, but I mean, it's very jarring to have Hulk Hogan up there just being like, man, greatest guy ever. And it's not questioned. I mean, Hulk Hogan comes off so well in this graphic novel. And I found that very, very jarring. Well, in general, like, I think all of the wrestlers are portrayed pretty positively. Yeah. Even like, it's kind of like one of those stories where like the it's not the players who are bad. It's the owners yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's fair. That's a take. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, it isn't, isn't fair. Some of these guys weren't good people. And like yeah. Hulk Hogan, I mean, is not necessarily a good person. Well, even yeah, scenes but... where they're not really behaving well, I think it kind yeah. of comes off as that like good old times with the boys mythos or something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, but again, I feel like that's a case where if Brown was being a bit more honest about him treating this as a story from kind of a fan perspective. And I mean, I another jarring thing was that, you know, just looking at the references and most of the references are to wrestler autobiographies, which I mean, some of those are very honest. I mean, you know, something like Mick Foley's one like pulls back the curtain a lot, but Usually wrestler autobiographies are sort of self-aggrandizing gestures that are ghostwritten. And I mean, you're basing this on that. And I that sort of sent me down a whole other spiral of clearly Brown must know what he's doing there in terms of playing with truth, right? And yet I almost wish that that had been more heavily emphasized in, in some way. I don't know. I don't know. It just made me uncomfortable. Something about that seeming objectiveness of his style and sort of presentation just made me uncomfortable i don't know well i think that maybe speaks to the opportunity that was here right like as you said portraying andre's pain is very much pulling the curtains back on wrestling in general not just andre's yeah. experience so it's there but as you said it could be there a lot more uh, i mean i mean the question is sort of whether or not the book suggests that his pain was worth it that this was a life well lived or whether he was exploited i don't know to me it very much lands on it was worth it this was an awesome life yeah. I mean, I, I really do think it does a good job of showing those both sides. And, you know, as I was saying sort of in my introduction to it, I, I, I do admire the way uh, the painful things and the joyful things are sort of rendered with the same kind of objective style, which does, again, like part of why I'm having all of these complex feelings about it is because the book encourages those complex feelings. And I think it does yeah. that intentionally. So that's definitely a mark in its favor. But yeah, I don't know. I'm still not comfortable with it, though. One scene that kind of bothered me, and I don't know if this bothers you guys at all. This could be nothing. But the Princess Bride, the story about him putting his giant hand on Robin Wright to keep her warm, yeah. that really rubs me the wrong way. Like, he literally put his hand on someone who was cold, and it's treated like a Mother Teresa moment. But it's obviously fetishizing his disability in, in mm. a way that I, I feel is icky, and I don't even know why. Well, I... Honestly, was a bit more uh, scripted out on a gender level. Like putting your head <laughs> around someone's head is kind of disturbing. It's at least patronizing. Well, it handled his kind of sexuality in like interesting but weird ways yeah. where, you know, he takes the woman back to his hotel room and everything. And he sort of, you know, mm -mm. there's this idea that he has this empathy for like. Uh, 
working women because he is a fellow outsider so he you know likes talking to sex workers but he doesn't necessarily like sleep with sex workers so it was trying to definitely trying to have its eat like eat its cake and have it too or whatever like in those moments of yeah I, I don't think that that was sort of explored as interestingly as it could have been and i sort of wondered about the illusion of that in some ways because if this is a book about his body in some senses it's avoiding a lot of sort of aspects of his body by avoiding some of those things but i don't know maybe that was like a, a case where brown did feel uncomfortable sort of being too intrusive with his fan gaze i mean like most of the time he's relying on interviews and video that by by its nature that side of the life is less a public record element mm -hmm. i don't yeah. know yeah, I don't know either. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I will say the Princess Bride part just read as kind of, uh, I don't know, that was sort of similar to the Samuel Beckett thing to me in that, oh, here's some like fun <laughs> highlights from like yeah. the, me that's it's just like basically me illustrating the DVD commentary of the Princess Bride. Isn't this adorable? Yeah, like, yeah I mean, sure, I guess. There's a lot of that in the text, actually. Like a lot of the key scenes of Andre the Giant are like the David Letterman interview when he was on Princess mm -hmm. Bride and WrestleMania 3. So again, coming back to that sort of fan perspective, it does seem well, like Brown is framing his narrative around really iconic moments. In terms of um, the storytelling here, there, there's a lot happening in terms of the body being represented visually, obviously visual medium. Um, that adds something to our dynamic outside of the narrative component. And this might be a, a great place to go specifically to Dororo. Like a lot of the visual techniques of manga, Tezuka invented them, right? Mm -hmm. uh, he's known for his staunchly minimalist style, but still getting a lot of like character out of it. How do you feel about his representation of um, um, Yakimaru uh, or even just in, in general, his background and backdrop and what that's adding to this story about a body? I'm trying to avoid using the uh, cliched uh, cartoonish. Mm -hmm. So imagine I didn't say that, I guess, but uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the figures are clearly more, the human figures especially are more abstract in the environment around them. The demons sometimes get depicted a little more, uh, with a little more detail, which is an interesting contrast between them. And of course it, it forms this, we have some very, uh, oversized depictions, exaggerated and it creates a sense of comedy even at times when some very serious things are happening. Uh, I'm thinking of like the scene where the villagers are guarding against the return of the demon and it's, it's very big and there are, uh, kind of berating each other. And then, but yet one of them still winds up horrifically murdered at the end of that scene. I don't know. Maybe it both makes the violence more shocking, but also alleviates it to a certain degree like the sort of it's not quite the same kind of violence of say a looney tune cartoon because the consequences of it still happens this leads to i think two kind of versions of uh yakamaru's fights that we see where he either does an enormous amount of damage in a single panel or uh it shows just kind of a montage of slices and both of them are kind of kind of startling in how vivid the violence is in those moments. Uh, I, it, it works for me in, in terms of being effective, but it is there's always a kind of yeah attention there that comes out. I think. Hmm. Yeah, I definitely felt that. I mean, I I sort of don't even feel qualified to speak on it that much because I read so like little manga and I was sort of is this kind of play between the graphic violence and the cartooniness typical and I think it's yeah. sort of typical yeah but, it's, uh... sort of, it's sort of typical but like with Tezuka especially there's always a question of like how much is he how much is it typical because he is setting it here mm-hmm yeah. yeah, we have the scene with like the um um the war orphans who are being cared for by Miho, who is um, prostituting herself for food with the soldiers mm -hmm. in the barracks. All of that rendered in a super, as you said, cartoony style. 
like, like that that's jarring i think for a lot of north american comics readers but as we yeah. said it's actually pretty consistent with manga and it can be really effective for i mean you know <laughs> she's so intensely innocent and beautiful mm -hmm. this woman who's being treated this way so and then i mean you can read it like the cartoonishness of the men is like an exaggeration of their evil so i mean it can play to our sympathies that way just like any cute cartoon character does well it's it's interesting because i'm i'm trying to think of what western equivalents would be and i wind up in something like what if erica henderson illustrated a squirrel girl story written by garth ennis or something <laughs> yeah i mean <laughs> I <do that>. yeah <laughs> i mean the, the tonal shifts definitely as like not a typical manga reader i did find like a little bit i agree that they're effective it's definitely intriguing but some of the moments of dororo moving so quickly from being mm -hmm hanged or tortured or whatever yeah. and then just like the <laughs> disnified cartoonish laughter <laughs> was like, well, it did like sort of get dororo's sort of you know mental mm -hmm. derangement or whatever we want to call it across but <laughs> like well, jarring probably, for me in a bad way sometimes there's probably something there too that uh it's yakimaru's body that is we are told over and over again is incomplete, but it's Dororo's body who is most frequently punished. And I mean, yeah, there's I also the, to make of that. there's the visual shifts in tone, but also the narrative shifts in tone that I'm always startled when this does some weird fourth wall breaking stuff, some anachronistic stuff. Like when uh, later on in the series, it's almost exclusively Dororo who does it. But like, there's a point where he has just been taken over by a demon sword. And he asks the reader, hey, was that you that spoke? Yeah, I was so, thinking yeah. of that. Well, maybe pushing oh. this to, to box Brown a little bit, I think one of the really interesting things that, that, that speaks to what Anna was talking about earlier is the choice of a very minimalist cartoonish style here. Whereas you would think more detail would allow, you know, more texture, possibly even emphasizing that like bodily pain kind of thing. Um, what's your take on Brown's illustration style and how it contributes to, to Andre's portrayal? In terms of violence or something, it's sort of an interesting choice because, mm. I mean, yeah, again, with the in-ring stuff, you do have an elision of the pain and things that would be happening there. And he makes some references to it, like when he has the fight with the guy, I forget his name, but the guy that Rocky is based on, and he does talk mm. about you know him being thrown out of the ring and stuff and he's not in on <laughs> on the performance so he's like actually fighting and it's quite horrifying and yet you could have made a visual choice to communicate the horrifyingness of that rather than using this very spare style to kind of mythologize it i mean strangely i find the scene in rocky 3 which is you know based on this kind of real fight with um hulk hogan playing thunderlips to be incredibly terrifying even though it's a very sort of mythologizing scene as well and yet i found that scene just sort of very i think about it a lot that scene actually i mean i had a real reaction to that the first time i saw it and yet this is very none of the violence feels scary and I don't know. That was another instance where I found myself questioning whether it should have been a little bit more scary or not. I don't know. Did you guys sort of think about that while you were reading it? Or is this just me being hung up on wrestling stuff again? The nature of the art, um, it really conveys, it, it fits well with the kind of the tall tale aspects that uh, yeah. you, you don't, that you're not as much a fan of. But you're right. There's I think, yeah, there's something lost in the, the brutality aspect mm. as a result. Maybe a good point of comparison would be to some of the body horror images that we see in Dororo, such as mm. the like yeah. skinless baby crawling towards Yeah, him. Yeah, I mean, I found some of those moments very effective. I mean, the one where his eyes drop out of his head was appropriately <laughs> horrifying. That was one of the things, that was probably one of my favorite panels in, in the book. And as a result, they get to play a lot more with Yakimaru kind of being monstrous sometimes, or at least in the way that he's interpreted by others. And I guess it's, I guess Brown really didn't want to go in a monstrous direction with Andre, and maybe that's reflected in the visual choice. Yeah, that's true. I mean, his design for the character of Andre is really interesting. He is very, he gives him this kind of triangle nose. He looks almost like a <laughs> Muppet, sort of. So he does sort of, you know, employ some deliberate, you know, 
cutification or something of Andre throughout with so selected moments of exaggeration of him sort of looking like a monster to other people and things. But he definitely depicts him in kind of a friendly way. But I don't think he shies away totally from kind of the monstrousness. I mean, there's mm -hmm. sort of some panels. I can think of one where he's in the bathroom and looking at himself in the mirror and we get him right. uh, opening his mouth and we get his teeth like sort of looking really like <laughs> grimy. <laughs> I mean, it's an intentional choice, right? When you're cartooning, you usually don't draw individual teeth because it looks much more attractive to just do like a nice straight line for the mouth and maybe one hatch mark just to indicate that they're teeth. When you make the decision to draw someone's individual teeth, that's always going to be horrifying in a comic book or cartoon. So when you make that choice, it's deliberate. So, I mean, that was an instance in which he's sort of it's sort of similar to the to Dororo in the sense that we get this intrusion into the cartoony reality. Um, mm -hmm. It's still using a cartoony style, but an intrusion of reality into that world can be very jarring just because of the nature of that world and the unreality that we're experiencing. And then you get these little kind of moments of like, ooh. So there were moments like that that I found effective. Can I ask yeah. you about that um, um, polyptic that you talked about earlier, Anna, where we have those, I think it's two pages, uh, that's sort of literally dissect andre into individual panels sort of linked together i could see yeah. that image being more effective if it was like medical realistic like bringing phoebe gleckner to draw that I, I would get a strong sense of the pain so, so what i find myself asking is sort of what's gained by insulating the reader from that that's an interesting question i there'd be a danger though in doing it too objective though in a way wouldn't there because that would turn him into a medical subject right i mean keeping it with this you know oh my god i so want to say cartoony as well. <laughs> <laughs> just drawing it as a comic book and not a medical drawing um does do something different i mean any type of cartooning has that empathy factor right where you know we bring ourselves into the image through the simplification of the image and so i mean Again, if it was sort of a medical drawing, I think it would have kind of a distancing effect that I think actually wouldn't be as effective. And especially mm -hmm. like having it be the same style that he uses for the scenes that are both the scenes of, you know, childlike joy and the scenes of darkness and using the same style to talk about his illness makes it clear how all of those things are connected. And I think that doing a radically different style there might have been jarring in the wrong way. Mm -hmm. Channeling this towards Michael a little bit again, just as a reflection of that, what do you make mm -hmm. of that distinction in style between the demons and the heroes in Dororo? Like, like why are the demons so much more intricate and detailed? What is that? Because they're more interesting. Yeah, it, <laughs> well, yeah, they're more interesting. It, it's a guy with sword arms. He's pretty interesting. <laughs> well, yes. Well, I think in that particular case, like detail moves towards monstrousness. Mm -hmm that it i mean it helps indicate that the demons are not of this world that there is a yeah they, they are visually distinct from the other beings it also creates a sense that they're almost more present which is complicated i guess um yeah well anna was talking about subject object relationship we could argue yeah it, it, it does make them a little more of the background the world around them which is interesting because there's a lot of seriality in the approach towards the monsters in that, in the way the narrative treats them particularly, that our first major encounter is very drawn out, that we have three chapters dedicated to this um, monster posing as an invalid woman who is being the benefactor of this town while also building them up to be crushed. Uh, by the time it gets to some of the later ones, they get a single chapter or even or get mixed up with the humans or something along those lines. And it becomes sort of a repeated, it becomes kind of a, yeah, a, a repetition of monster. Yeah. And the visuals help draw out their individuality, I guess, on that level. That it's okay for the villagers to be less detailed because they're supposed to be interchangeable, but the demons need to stand out if the story is to land. And does that work as something we can bring back to Andre in the sense that if it was super realistic portraying um, this disease he has, this genetic disease, would that have subjected him to a level of like like spectacle that would border on ridicule to some degree? Would that medicalize him in a way that would move against Brown's intent with the story? 
I think so. I think that would be my argument. Yeah. I think that it's humanizing his condition in a way to have it be rendered in the same style as the rest of the graphic novel. And, and to cool. use, you know, a, a quote unquote cartoony style to render that, you know, can have that empathy factor. And I think that's important. And there's also like a choice that's been made to Andre does not comment about his disability for the most part ever. Yeah. yeah. And, like, so we we only see even the this medical entourage or this medical montage through a kind of silence on his part that's an interesting choice i mean i did read that as extending from andre and you know him probably just being like that and yeah, not talking well, yeah. about andre it. is yeah. in general pretty stoic but yeah, he, he cries on the plane at one point talking about feeling abnormal and how the children don't understand him. yeah which you know is I don't remember if that specific scene was i think that was with mean gene who was yeah. just adorable in that scene really <laughs> but, um... okay so um one thing to talk about is um the ways in which you have these sort of central characters in their relationship to their bodies juxtaposed with other characters and their bodies and identifiers and all that kind of stuff uh, so for example in dororo we have hiaki maru um, contrasted, like, like paired off sidekick style with Dororo, who is undergoing a complex relationship to gender identity in this society. And then in the case of Andre the Giant, we have um, Andre the Giant being like he, the tragedy of his life in this book is being identified as abnormal, but we also see him being racist and sexist. Uh, so there's kind of layers to these portrayals here that are maybe achieved through these contrasts. Um, over the course of the three volumes, I guess you could frame it as getting a lot of variety in female depiction. We get a lot of different female characters. I think we get a much more limited type of female character portrayal. Mm. That we have um, the female who is really a demon. Uh, that happens a lot. Yep. Uh, and that follows pretty standard. Oh, she looked beautiful, but now she's trying to bite my head off kind of approach. Um, we have the tragic female character who is there uh, essentially to be helpless and vulnerable. And we have very much more brief uh, other ways of framing gender. I can't remember her name, but I think it's in the second volume or third volume, uh, we get uh, a character who is a daughter to a man who is consuming all the food in a village yeah and she is depicted as uh maybe mentally disabled but uh she has some very weird speech mannerisms but uh arguably kind of closer to dororo in the sense that she is this less of a tragic waif and more of a kind of mischievous character who gets Hyaku or Hyakumaru's affection. And it's hard to say how much is uh, Tezuka playing with the historical way that women were forced into particular roles and his own maybe limitations in terms of gender portrayals that mm -hmm. I'm very hesitant to identify Dororo as a female character at all. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think there is definitely a normativity that is enforced on them, especially by Yakamaru, and a sense that uh, he says at the end of the story, uh, it would be really nice if when we met again, you were wearing a dress or something <laughs> along those lines. And uh, it feels very condescending at the moment. But also, I, I like Dororo's arc is the wrong term because manga stories tend to be more episodic than that but the exploration of a character who has had it reinforced to them that the only thing that can survive in this society is power and they are fixated in finding a sword that will help them do that and the one time they do manage that uh they turn kind of monstrous because of what the sword enables in them uh i guess there is a normativity in that stand go too far outside of what is allowed to you and you will be shot down, but also 
performing your gender in the normative ways is also not a trope is not also not a way to survive in this world well you mentioned there's sort of like a like a binary right uh, women are either monsters or nurturers yeah which, and which is appropriate one. because yakimaru is you know separated from his mom and all that kind of stuff you can see yeah. a value to that in some way but how do you think yeah. that that binary affects and the way Dororo fits into it uh, affects Yakimaru's story? Like, how does it contrast? Yakimaru's story is kind of moving from a more monstrous form into a more acceptable one. Yeah, it, I guess it makes sense that he is enforcing that same transition to on Dororo. I don't know. I mean, Dororo's like, where does Dororo's mom fit into that? I mean, she's an interesting character oh, who awesome. kind of straddles boundaries. Yeah. Uh, although she is kind of a protector that fails, that she falls because she doesn't have the defense of her husband anymore, but yeah. she manages to do this. These heroic, I mean, she lives the life of a bandit and still raises her child, which, yeah. and there's never any direct commentary that this is inappropriate or impossible for her, other than the fact that she can't keep doing it without her husband. Yeah, I know. You have you have the usual thing of her kind of violence and agency and activeness is justified through protecting her child, which is yeah. a common way of justifying female warriorness yep. in both <laughs> in many different cultures. I mean, this is a story where virtually any kind of ambition is framed as extremely negative, that it is the way <laughs> for the samurai to become it is how the samurai inflict their own cruelty on others. Uh, so it's it's a story that's uh, basically live the peaceful life or die horribly, but yeah. uh, and it's very much a cruel world. Like like yeah, that's and, yeah, live the peaceful life and maybe die horribly anyway. Yeah, <laughs> it's that sense in this world of am I supposed to feel bad about these tragedies and the nature of this world? Because on the other hand, it's enabling all this badass fighting, which kind of seems like the point of the book. Yeah. So well, there, yeah, is it a... like trading in that tragedy to justify this or? There's a joy in living on kind of the border that I think it does explore and maybe puts, pushes a bit, a bit back against the normativity that living on the border lets you do all these awesome, cool things like be the cool thief or the cool lawyer mm -hmm. you know also we've talked in a previous pod when we talked about apocalypse fictions about that you know sort of the masculinist apocalypse fantasies mm -hmm. of the world has descended into chaos therefore it justifies me being this super awesome badass warrior guy who's just going around killing everybody with a stoic look on my face because that's the only way to survive in this world yeah the men can be men again <laughs> but then you know yeah, this oh. world in this case also invites gender play in the case of Jororo. so i mean we do get that as well okay so on the on the box brown side um andre is sexist and racist right why put such a spotlight on those aspects here in contrast to someone who is already on the margins of society well i mean you know for the obvious reason of like illustrating that just the fact that you're an outsider doesn't mean you automatically have empathy for every other type of outsider, different differences are different and all of those things. I mean, I'm curious about your reactions to the Bad News Brown scene. So what effectively it is, is a bunch of wrestlers are on a bus. I think they're, are they in Japan in that scene? Um, I think so. Anyway, they're, they're going around to various events and Bad News Brown is the only African-American wrestler um, on the bus. And um, Andre says some derisive thing to him and uses the N-word and other wrestlers on the bus, the other white wrestlers laugh and it's very uncomfortable. And um, I think he says in the notes that the scene was taken from Bad News Brown's um, autobiography, which was the, one of the main sources. So it's sort of a story told from his perspective in a sense. And we do get an emphasis on on Brown's reactions or Bad News Brown's reactions. It's confusing because it's the same name as the creator. Um, um, we do get an emphasis on his reaction um, in the scene and how angry and sort of isolated this treatment makes him. And definitely the WWF, WWE has a long-standing, <laughs> long-standing and continued issues with racism. Um, 
in wrestling, your racial identity often becomes a part of your exaggerated character. This is a genre that trades on racial stereotypes much as it trades on gender stereotypes. So that's always going to be a vexed thing within this genre. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, it read a little bit hollow to me just inserting that. I mean, it's almost just like this little reminder that, hey, he's not perfect. He did like the worst thing that we can think about, which is use the N-word. Look at this. Mm-hmm. And then there's a sort of uncomfortable healing that happens later in the graphic novel, too, toward more the end of Andre's life, where he's, oh, bad news is on this card. I'm going to go say hi to him. And then he's like, so are we friends again? Bad news. And they shake hands. And I'm like, why does he get that moment of redemption, which he didn't earn in any particular way? And that's another instance where just sort of the hands-off approach to... Well, you know, that sort of sense of objectivity that this graphic novel has had me had me sort of questioning its approach again, because, I mean, this is, on the one hand, honest in a way. I mean, it wouldn't have been realistic for Andre to go through some, you know, self-examination and for us to turn the whole graphic novel into something about that, because maybe he just wasn't that type of person. But on the other hand, you made a choice to put this scene in the graphic novel that shows him being kind of forgiven for his actions when he didn't earn that forgiveness. So I don't know. I just had a lot of questions about sort of, I'm happy that that stuff was included. And yet I don't know that it went anywhere. See, I actually didn't think he was redeemed in that scene. No, no, I I see exactly what you're saying. Like, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with anything. No, 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 that's okay. I was curious about your reactions to it. To me, I think that like the briefness of the scene was was kind of like a footnote. And yeah, he did apologize, but he was still a racist. <laughs> so, so it's a little bit better. But I, I don't think Brown was reaching to sort of redeem Andre's character in that moment. Maybe I think the depiction of his, um, well, the interview from his uh, illegitimate child works better in that regard, that it really doesn't have any sort of redeeming note for him in it. Um, he intersperses some of Andre's sort of last matches with um, this interview with his yeah estranged child to whom he didn't pay a ton of child support um, during his life, though he did leave his estate to her, I believe. Um, so yeah, and that, that he does, there's no apology made for his treatment of her at all other than to, I don't even know that it made notes the estate thing i think maybe i just read that yeah. um, myself afterwards so that's interesting that he chooses not to note that because that's a case of him not sanctioning andre's behavior and yet i can't come back to like he does just like it's a graphic novel that's not super long that's telling someone's whole life and he can only include so many stories and yet he puts like two pages in of the subsequent encounter with andre and brown and him going to shake his hand so i'm just like well it's still you made a choice to include that and i agree that it's not totally redeeming him and yet why did you include that because you could have just left it like but you chose to include that i don't know yeah no that's a fair point Uh, okay, and as we like to do, let's make some recommendations related to some of today's material in some way. Michael, what have you got? Um, I would like to recommend the 10-issue series The Order by Matt Fraction and Barry Kitson. Uh, the premise is essentially aspirational celebrities who have some aspect of them uh, towards disability or mental illness uh, become superheroes and it explores military force and celebrityism. Uh, It is messy. It probably did not do very well because it's a Marvel comic that does not feature uh, notably any Marvel superheroes. And Fraction himself pulled the plug after the 10 issues, but it is an interesting failure, I think. (laughs) And, And recommended in this kind of context of like, why is it so hard to write about these figures very nice and anna what have you got um i am not even going to recommend a comic since i'm all on the nostalgic wrestling kick now i am going to recommend wrestlemania 3 which you know you could watch if you have (laughs) if you have the subscription to wwe network um which for a while it was the only kind of sport going on but um despite that i still am not caught up on things but um 
WrestleMania 3 was a great one. It's referenced in the Box Brown comic extensively. Um, Andre's kind of going at, going away party match where he sort of hands the torch over to Hulk Hogan. It also features a legendary match between Ricky the Dragon Steamboat and Macho Man Randy Savage. Macho Man is my personal favorite wrestler of all time, and it is an absolutely amazing match. So many elbow drops and uh, just a really, really great one. It's a really long, really technically proficient match with also great showmanship because it's Macho Man who's the king. Um, just so much classic wrestling in WrestleMania 3. It opens with Aretha Franklin singing America the Beautiful, You Can't Go Wrong. So if you're interested in revisiting some classic wrestling, maybe check out some of those matches on YouTube and relive the joy, but also remember all the pain behind the scenes because you've also read Box Brown and want to bring a humanism to this spectacle. That's amazing. I'm going to um, unify us by um, placing Wolverine in the role of both of these texts. I'm going to recommend um, Barry Windsor Smith's Weapon X, uh, mm -hmm. which is like the origin story of Wolverine. It's full on body horror and has a lot of like um, kind of um, um, Andre the Giant elements to it. Uh, and then the Dororo version of Wolverine is just the Wolverine original miniseries by Chris Claremont and Frank Miller. Uh, I just think it's kind of fun that we can have that, that character. Wolverine can be a protagonist in anything. I've made this argument before. He can, <laughs> he can span any genre, including like rom-com if you need him to. Isn't that just like Wolverine inserting himself into everything? Yes, very much so. <laughs> <laughs> Good Rex, though. Okay. Uh, okay, and that concludes um, another episode of Three Panel Contrast, miraculously put together via remote technology, um, which means we don't have to thank anybody but ourselves. And our next pairing will be Diceman, issue one by Pat Mills and Committee, and You Are Deadpool by Al Ewing and Salva Espin. Bring your 2D6.